One thing that can be said for certain is that it was a cataclysm such as the world had never seen. The ancient, mighty freehold, home to dragons and to sorcerers of unrivaled skill, was shattered and destroyed within hours. Over 400 years ago, Aegon the Conqueror's great-great-great-grandmother, when still a maiden, had a dream. A very bad dream. It was a nightmare, really. Worse, she knew it was a true glimpse of the future. She would later be known as Daenys the Dreamer, for not only did her foretelling come to pass, it became one of the most important predictions in all of the Song of Ice and Fire history. Now, Daenys the Dreamer sure is a lot catchier than, what, Daenys the Nightmare? (laughs) But what Daenys Targaryen did dream was the Doom of Valyria. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Now this is a history episode, which often means that it will be spoiler-free for TV viewers, but in this particular case, we did use quotes from a few Arya and Tyrion scenes that have yet to happen, and so there are some small giveaways regarding their plot lines, though to be fair, they are things that have been strongly hinted at. There are also one or two quotes from characters who will probably not appear on the show, nor will their plot lines be covered in all likelihood, and, and I'm doubtful that the TV show will ever spend much time on the Doom anyway. So this episode is fairly safe even for TV show only folks, but relies only on material from the book, save for a few HBO details that we noted for the fun of it. We're also using material from The World of Ice and Fire, of course, so spoilers abound if you haven't yet read The World of Ice and Fire. Now, by the end of the episode, we will have explained the doom itself, its effects, the aftermath, what caused it, and finally, some fun items that link the doom to the main story of A Song of Ice and Fire. As always, George R. R. Martin loves to parallel history with current times, and we're always on the lookout for those parallels. Since ancient times, on Earth and in general, and even on Planetos, creative endeavors require patronage to survive, let alone thrive. Thus do we rely on you great lords and ladies for support. Come join the ranks of those who continue to make History of Westeros possible by visiting historyofwesteros.com and clicking the donate link up in the upper right corner. Uh, This will contribute to our coffers. Uh, Even a copper makes a difference, a stag or a dragon even more so. With that in mind, some shout-outs. John L. from Virginia, Daniel D. from Manchester in the UK, Jesse P. from Starkville, that's a great Mm -hmm. one, right? Must be cold in Starkville. Uh, Kevin R., also from uh, PA, Uh, James S., also from the UK and Brighton, John M. from California, and John, we will do a better job of announcing the live events Hmm. in the future so people have uh, more lead time in knowing when they're coming. Also, Rachel from Virginia. Eric from Buffalo, and an anonymous donator on behalf of House Manwood. Probably because you were on that uh, podcast of Ice and Fire episode. (laughs) Possibly. Uh, So also thanks to our regulars, uh, Robert J. from Scotland, Blake G. from Florida, and James S. I don't know where you're from, James. (laughs) Now, uh, we're making a lot of changes in the show coming up. Uh, One of the most exciting things is that we are likely to sign with a management group to help promote our show and to make this more of a full-time endeavor. We're certainly not to the point where we can do it full-time, but we are doing what we can to take steps towards that. And this is one of the first steps. It's a very big step, and we're really excited for that. We can't say too much about it yet until it's done, but we were trying to work a lot of these things out before this episode came out. This episode's actually been ready for a little while, for a couple of weeks, really. Yeah. But we've been trying to work some of these things out so we could announce them, and then... Things have changed, and the the announcement is not certain at this point, so rather than delay the episode, we'll just announce all these things in the next episode and just keep the ball rolling. So, 
Uh, one of the things we're going to change is that we're not going to do shout-outs for donators anymore unless you request it. You can still have it, but you have to specifically request it. We're not just going to do that by default. Um, we're also going to be launching a Patreon campaign. If you're not familiar with Patreon, um, well, you'll be able. we'll explain it more in mm. greater detail later. Some of you already out there are well familiar with it, and you've been encouraging us to get on it. And that's going to happen. It should be before the next episode, so we'll see about that. Uh, that'll also mean there'll be some commercials in our uh, videos and, and iTunes uh, episodes, but um, you know, that's, just, that's what we got to do to make this a full-time thing, mm. uh, which will enable us, hopefully, to revive the dream of an episode every two weeks or something along those lines, uh, which was really premature when I first announced that. Uh, there's, there was just no way to make that happen. Uh, so we're hoping to make that a reality, though, in the future, and thanks to everybody that's helping make that possible by supporting the show in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we're going to do in particular that I know a lot of you guys have been asking for is to have our episodes be more consistent as to when they're released. Uh, so that you know that, hey, it's the third Sunday of every month, History of Westeros podcast is going to release an episode. Something along those lines. And, of course, if we have more than one episode a month, which we're going to do uh, in the long term or in the medium term, short term, uh-huh. depending on how things work out, we'll have those be regularly scheduled as well. So, a lot of exciting stuff that's, mm-hmm. that's getting that we've been working on a lot the last few months. And a lot of those things are getting closer and closer to being done. So, we'll have more complete announcements when the time mm-hmm. comes. But for now, here's a cat. A cat. <laughs> yeah, here's a cat. But um, yeah, for now, you can also we have uh, we have um, links on our website, Amazon affiliate links. Um, so if there's different merchandise of Ice and Fire that you want to purchase, um, you can get it through us. Uh, if you follow that link and then purchase something else, it also counts. So if you're you know if you're doing some holiday shopping, you can get it all done at the same time. That's right. Um, we're actually thinking about it. it'd be cool to do an episode on the merchandise of Ice and Fire. There's so many cool things. There's these maps. There's board mm-hmm. games. There's everything. Um, that would be a fun thing to talk about sometime. Yeah, the, that, those are kind of things that we certainly don't want to put a lot of energy into when we can only do an episode every mm. you know once every six to eight weeks, but. If the show grows and gets bigger, which we're you know, pushing for as hard mm-hmm. as we can, then we'll have time to do these, these extra episodes as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, on to part one of six, the history of the history of the Doom. Uh, we are introduced to the Doom of Valyria in the first ever Catelyn chapter when Ned's Valyrian steel greatsword Ice is introduced. Now, this chapter is preceded only by Bran and the prologue, and it's followed by the first ever Daenerys chapter, which contains this quote. Inside the manse, the air was heavy with the scent of spices, pinch fire and sweet lemon and cinnamon. They were escorted across the entry hall, where a mosaic of colored glass depicted the Doom of Valyria. From that, we could only deduce that the Doom was a... Depictable. (laughs) In the first episode of the TV show, you can actually see a depiction of this depiction in Danny's very first scene. The mural behind Viserys. Look for it next time you rewatch season one, episode one. (laughs) You might need to pause, though. It's not on screen for very long. So, I mean, even if we consider that this is a form of evidence, it's still too vague. Yeah. Wait, George? So something completely annihilated an ancient magical dragon riding society but you aren't telling us what it was well damn yeah exactly it's clear from context though that the doom destroyed valyria which was a clearly advanced society capable of making ridiculous swords and taming dragons at the very least but we aren't really given much to go on with regards to the what the hell was it question what force could have taken out valyria seriously there's nothing much else to deduce from a game of thrones and it isn't even in a clash of kings at all 
it's mentioned quite a few times in A Storm of Swords, but there's nothing really of substance. It's just kind of comes up. Uh, so George kind of kept the mystery going, in other words. Mm-hmm. But finally, by A Dance with Dragons, we learn that Valyria was destroyed by what seems to have been multiple volcanoes erupting simultaneously. These volcanoes are called the Fourteen Flames. Fourteen or fourteen thousand. <laughs> what man dares count them? It is not wise for mortals to look too deeply at those fires, my friend. Those are the fires of God's own wrath, and no human flame can match them. We are small creatures, men. This is even depicted very subtly in the TV show during the opening sequence and in the first episode. But back in A Feast for Crows, the kindly man explains to Arya how the faceless men originated in the slave mines of Valyria. Now remember that the House of Black and White views death as a gift, an end to suffering and desire and all the ills of humanity. Yeah, it's like doom Buddhism or something. (laughs) Now here's where it gets juicy, though. The faceless men come out and admit it was them. Arya drew back from him. He killed the slave? That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring the gift to them as well. Now look at that wording. He admits they gave the gift, so death, to the slave masters. Now it's doubtful that they were assassinated one at a time, right? I mean, that's literally hundreds if not thousands of masters we're talking about. I seriously doubt they were picked off one by one by assassins. These are mine systems all over a mountain range containing 14 different volcanoes and probably some mountains that aren't volcanoes. So the implication here is of killing a lot, or all, of these people at the same time, i.e. the doom. But the faceless men are assassins, and as far as we know, it doesn't really go beyond that. Causing volcanic eruptions isn't exactly part of the training. (laughs) I don't think it goes, learn to use your senses, learn to fight, learn to disguise yourself, and learn the inner secrets of geothermal dynamics. So if they didn't kill the masters one at a time, then how did they do it? Now, appropriately, the kindly man continues his tale of the first faceless man with... But that is a tale for another day. One best shared with no one. He cocked his head. And who are you, child? No one. So he says the tale is best told to no one, and we know the adop- that, adoptedi- the adop- ah, that adopting the identity of no one is very apparently a part of what the faceless men aim for with their training, etc. Perhaps if Arya gets far enough with them, she'll give, they'll give her the full story. Which we surely want, but we might not <laughs> actually need it to figure out the mystery. So far, we've got a likely candidate for who caused it, and we know what it was, so let's turn to how they did it and part two of six... Valyria before the doom. At its apex, Valyria was the greatest city in the known world, the center of civilization. Valyria is at the heart of the lands of the long summer, and it is referenced as the most fertile in the world. Looking at a world map, you'd see that the entire Valyrian subcontinent is south of Dorne, so no wonder it's so warm. Tyrion thinks... An empire built on blood and fire. The Valyrians reaped the seed they had sown. And in the world of ice and fire, we are told... Of the history of Valyria as it is known today, many volumes have been written over the centuries, and the details of their conquests, their colonizations, the feuds of the dragon lords, the gods they worshipped, and more could fill libraries and still not be complete. Galendro's The Fires of the Freehold is widely considered the most definitive history, and even there the Citadel lacks 27 of the scrolls. This may have been a topic deemed too large for the world of ice and fire, or something George is saving for later. But in any case, we didn't actually learn much new about the Freehold itself. We learned quite a few new things about some of their colonies and the effect of Valyria and its fall. But as far as culture, people, names, major events, for the most part, we're left to imagine. And this is a challenge. (laughs) We can hardly begin to imagine what the city of Valyria was like. 
It was the heart of a vast dominion that stretched from Dragonstone to Slaver's Bay, north into what later became known as the Dothraki Sea, and south into parts of Sothorios, that vast southern continent. We're told that they had magic, and we know they created some truly amazing structures, though. We have a few examples of Illyrian architecture thanks to things like Dragonstone, and it's which is creepy, amazing aspect. All those dragon heads mm. that are carved with these strange angles, and mm. uh, we also have the Valyrian roads, which are considered a wonder of the world by world traveling Lomas Longstrider and Tyrion himself. Mm-hmm. And we have other things like Valyrian sphinxes, which are mentioned in a few places. We can assume that the city proper would have been incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at in the World Wise of Fire; they have that uh, the fourteen flames. Uh, art piece which was pretty stunning it was pretty fantastical uh, and so we like we said we say that dragonstone is amazing but it might and probably does pale in comparison to the structures built for the elite of valyria with slaves and sorcery yeah i mean dragonstone was built by traders basically i mm-hmm. mean what did the, the actual most powerful guys what did their house look like mm-hmm. but also there's dragons yeah. lots of dragons yeah apparently there were 40 dragon rider families and we didn't actually learn any more about them uh, in the world of Ice and Fire, other than House Belarius, as Gynera Belarius explored Sothorios. So there's one more Dragon Rider family out of 40. <laughs> we know uh, two. <laughs> yeah, one of the other families, the other one, is the Targaryens. They were not on, They were not one of the strongest. They only brought five dragons to... Only five dragons. <laughs> yeah, only five <laughs> dragons to Dragonstone. But they were the only one with Daenys the Dreamer. Or perhaps they weren't. We don't actually know. <laughs> it's possible... Uh, since Daenys wasn't in charge and her father Aenar was, it's mm-hmm. possible that you know other families had some sort of dream, but they just didn't believe mm-hmm. it. Aenar, who would be Aegon the Conqueror's great, 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 great grandfather, mm-hmm. became known as Aenar the Exile because he listened to his very correct daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there were other heads of families who chose to ignore the prophecy, unable to bring themselves to believe that's something that meant giving up so much power. We're told by the histories that... You should listen to your daughters. But <laughs> the Targaryens were far from the most powerful of the dragon lords, and their rivals saw their flight to Dragonstone as an act of surrender, as cowardice. Aenar also sold his holdings, and probably got a staggering sum for them. Uh, as a freehold, The way that, what that means is the power is wielded by landowners. There isn't a king or any sort of monarch or anything like that. But only So it's only those who had land in Valyria itself were in charge. So, I mean, this is we already described how big this empire was. Think about buying property in the richest parts of London or New York or Paris or Tokyo or Hong Kong. Multiply that by a lot, mm-hmm. and you're probably getting close to what Aenar got for his uh, his. Valyria contained huge amounts of wealth extracted from their subject nations, either through, you know, tribute or conquest. <laughs> Power and money was constantly drawn towards the center, towards the capital. It was very concentrated there. It's a lot like ancient Rome, but with dragons and sorcery. And there are 14 Pompeys. And not a one has Kit Harrington. <laughs> so we can't ask Jon Snow what Valyria was like. Kit Harrington was in Pompeii, if you didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Daenerys gets a faint hint herself in the form of a huge and ancient tapestry. A map? It is beautiful. It covered half the floor. The seas were blue, the lands were green, the mountains black and brown. Cities were shown as stars in gold or silver thread. There is no smoking sea, she realized. Valyria is not yet an island. Indeed. Before it was an island, it sat amongst these 14 flames. Surely an extreme example of something that giveth and taketh away. (laughs) For thousands of years before destroying them completely, the Valyrians drew massive wealth and the only source for the major power we associate with the blood of of the freehold, dragons, said by many to have originated in this area. 
Though others do claim that dragons first came from a shy, or from a second moon that wandered too close to the sun, but that's a tale for another time. The massive wealth that Valyria had came from these extensive mines that came at great human cost. Burnt and blackened corpses were oft found in shafts where the rocks were cracked or full of holes, yet still the mines drove deeper. Slaves perished by the score, but their masters did not care. Red gold and yellow gold and silver were reckoned to be more precious than the lives of slaves, for slaves were cheap in the old freehold. During war, the Valyrians took them by the thousands. Now, interestingly, a passage indicates that Valyria's hunger for gold never led them into contact with Casterly Rock, whom you think they could have at least traded with. However... Septon Barth speculated on the matter, referring to a Valyrian text that has since been lost, suggesting that the Freehold sorcerers foretold that the gold of Casterly Rock would destroy them. Now, this could be a reference to Tywin and Jaime killing off the Targaryen dynasty, but... Valyria did actually acquire some actual Lannister gold as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a conflict uh, in from what the text tells us, which is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed mm-hmm. to have conflicts like that. Well, But here it is. The, the sword Brightroar came into the possession of the Lannister kings in the century before the Doom, and it is said that the weight of gold they paid for would have been enough to raise an army. Now, it's hard to imagine the money used by Brightroar making a huge difference in the wealth of the Dragonlord of, of a Dragonlord of Valyria, considering how wealthy we mm-hmm. just described they probably were. But... The demand was high on both sides, so it is possible. Mm-hmm. And over time, the demand only grew. But this demand wasn't mere greed. Riches were not the only motivation. There may have been a far more urgent need. Part three of six, the catalyst or the chain reaction. Now, there are plenty of theories out there ranging from natural disaster, you know, volcanoes being volcanoes, mm-hmm. to man-made disaster, all that tunneling for wealth as well as connections made to Hardhome, the wildling proto-town, whose inhabitants faced this. Their homes and halls consumed in a conflagration that burned so hot that watchers on the wall far to the south had thought the sun was rising in the north. Afterward, ashes rained down on haunted forest and shivering sea alike for almost half a year. Though this is perhaps just an ordinary volcano, it may have been included in the narrative for a deeper reason. But we don't really have anything to go on there. The story, the details, and its origins are all too vague. The most compelling connection comes from the world of ice and fire. A handful of maesters, influenced by fragments of the world of the work of Septon Barth, hold that Valyria had used spells to tame the fourteen flames for thousands of years, that their ceaseless hunger for slaves and wealth was as much to sustain those, these spells as to expand their power. Careful listeners will know that we've kept track a bit of Septon Barth. We're working on an episode on him. And we know that this is a man who knows what he's talking about. What our man Barth is saying is that there were sorcerers using magic of some kind to keep these volcanoes from erupting and doing what they eventually did, kill everyone and everything. (laughs) Sounds like incredibly potent magic. And with all the exaggerations that seem to creep in over the course of history, perhaps such a thing is not truly possible, but... The freehold of Valyria lasted many thousands of years amidst the 14 flames, and even one volcanic eruption could be an extinction-level event. Right, so given that... One out of 14. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You'd think that something would have happened. With that much time passing, an eruption is bound to happen under natural circumstances. But the Valyrians had access to the supernatural. As the kindly man reminds us... The dragon lords of the old freehold were strong in sorcery, and lesser men defied them at their peril. The first faceless man was one who did. Who was he? Arya blurted, before she stopped to think. No one, he answered. Of course he did. No one, again. 
The problem with this plan of using magic to hold back the volcanoes is suggested by Septon Barth here. When at last those, fel- those spells faltered, the cataclysm became inevitable. So that fits perfectly, doesn't it? And it makes so much sense. It might be the case that they only had to lose control for a split second. All that pressure, volcanic pressure contained for thousands of years. No wonder it was of such intensity. Even if it was inevitable, that doesn't mean something didn't speed it up. It doesn't mean something didn't help the doom along its way. Maester Yandel tells us, Some, wedding the fanciful notion of Valyrian magic to the reality of the ambitious great houses of Valyria, have argued that it was the constant whirl of conflict and deception amongst the great houses that might have led to the assassinations of too many of the reputed mages who renewed and maintained the rituals that banked the fires of the Fourteen Flames. Now first, think about that concept. Valyrian sorcery and ritual, most likely rooted in blood and fire, of course, (laughs) Constantly keeping these unbelievably intense natural forces at bay, or banked, as it's termed here. Now second, think about the notion that assassinations of key sorcerers unleashed the doom. Is it really all that likely that the Valyrians caused their own destruction this way? Maybe, but probably not, especially when we've seen that the faceless men, expert assassins, say it was their doing. Surely, though, whether or not the Valyrians worked as houses or together to ensure these rituals continued... The notion of assassination would not be unfamiliar to them. I would think such men and women would be heavily guarded by their families, if not by the freehold as a whole. I mean, it's their entire mm-hmm. culture is depending on this, <laughs> these volcanoes not blowing up in their face. Mm-hmm. So they might be in isolated locations, uh, mm-hmm. but under, and under, under such circumstances, it might be difficult to you know, get to these people to assassinate mm-hmm. them. Unless, of course, you can change your appearance. Mm. For a faceless man, it might be quite easy. It fits pretty well. Mm, it does. Yeah. So while we seem to have had it right when we said that the faceless men didn't kill off the slave masters one at a time, that might have been exactly what they did to two these key sorcerers until the 14 flames were at last unleashed after eons of entrapment. So we've answered the who, the why, and now the how for the doom of Valyria. What comes next? The when. <laughs> the bank has been known to topple lords and princes and has also been rumored to send assassins against those it cannot remove. Of course, this would be the Iron Bank. Now, there's no f- proven connection or strong piece of evidence that we can point to connecting the faceless men and the Iron Bank other than common location and bravos. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, it's not a stretch to imagine that they've worked together in the past. Certainly, they're aware of each other. <laughs> they both have existed since the beginning of Bravo. So, especially when dealing with the common threat of Valyria, you could see why they might, mm. you know, join forces or something. Yeah. Perhaps they still work together even now. But. Yeah. So, Bravos was founded in secret by slaves previously owned by, Val- by Valyrians. So, it was Valyria in particular that they were hiding from. And as a result, they hate slavery themselves. The new city vowed that no man, woman, or child in Bravos should ever be a slave, a thrall, or a bondsman. This is the first law of Bravos. The Sea Lords have opposed slavery in all of its forms and have fought many a war against slavers and their allies. Now, just before the time that Bravos, once known as the Secret City, revealed its location to the world for the first time, uh, Uthero, the Sea Lord of Bravos, sent envoys from the Iron Bank to Valyria in advance of this big reveal called <laughs> the Unmasking. Even if Uthero did not, himself did not worry, surely many feared reprisal from the Freehold. But... The Dragon Lords proved to have little interest in the descendants of slaves who had escaped a century before, and the Iron Bank paid handsome settlements to the grandchildren of the men whose ships the founders had seized and sailed away on, whilst refusing to pay for the value of the slaves themselves. The timing of this is really hard to ignore. 
Bravos was founded approximately 500 years ago, and they came out of hiding 100 years after. In other words, about 400 years ago, Bravos was revealed. The Doom was also about 400 years ago. So perhaps while the Iron Bank was paying off these old debts to Valyria, other members of their traveling party slipped off with murder in mind. Remember, it isn't just slaves that the Bravosi hate, but dragons too. Tycho Nestoris, the amiable banker. <laughs> you will forgive me if I do not laugh. We Bravosi are descended from those who fled Valyria and the Roth of its dragon lords. We do not jape of dragons. So these Bravosi had quite a lot of motivation here. If the doom came suddenly, as it seems to have, some faceless men may have essentially sacrificed their lives, not having time to flee after their mission and before the devastation, and possibly knowing it. <laughs> yeah, they would probably think it worth what worth it. A life or a few lives to end Valyria forever? To end the slavery? To kill many or most of the dragons? Surely to have devoted enough uh, person, death is well worth that result. No matter the timing, and no matter how sudden, and no matter the cause... It came. So now on to part four of six, the doom itself. It was written that every hill for 500 miles split asunder to fill the air with ash and smoke and fire so hot and hungry that even the dragons in the sky were engulfed and consumed. Great rents opened in the earth, swallowing palaces, temples, and entire towns. Lakes boiled or turned to acid. Mountains burst. Fiery fountains spewed molten rock a thousand feet into the air, and red clouds rained down dragon glass and the black blood of demons. How'd that get in there? Black blood of demons. <laughs> to the north, the ground splintered and collapsed and fell in on it itself, and an angry sea came boiling in. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. The fabled empire vanished in a day. How imagine that? I mean, if, if it's even possible to. Everyone and everything for huge stretches, just gone. Heat and ash enough to kill dragons. <laughs> we also see from that quote that it wasn't just the city of Valyria destroyed by the doom. The damage spread all over the Valyrian peninsula and even had a devastating effect as far away as this Isle of, of Cedars, an, isle, an island barely inside Slaver's Bay, stretching out into the Gulf of Grief. On the day the doom came to Valyria, it was said, a wall of water 300 feet high had descended on the island, drowning hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children, leaving none to tell the tale but some fisherfolk who had been out at sea, and a handful of Velasi spearmen posted in a stout stone tower on the island's highest hill, who had seen the hills and valleys beneath them turn into a raging sea. Fair Velas, with its palaces of cedar and pink marble, had vanished in a heartbeat. On the north end of the island, the ancient brick walls and steppe pyramids of the slaver port Gozai had suffered the same mm. fate. And now countless other unnamed cities and towns were also destroyed. If the real world is any sort of guideline, the death and destruction occurred in a multitude of ways. Volcanoes can kill and devastate with variety. Lava can destroy everything in its path. Burning debris can rain from above. Sulfur can poison. And ash can suffocate. In this case also, there was also massive flooding, uh, which caused what seems to have been earthquakes. Uh, and add drowning, so add drowning and falling into bottomless chasms to the list of ways to die in a volcano like this <laughs> as well. There's probably a few others I missed. It's a, it's a big list. <laughs> now, real-world volcanoes like Samalis, Tambora, Krakatoa, and Hatepe, thanks, Phoenix, <laughs> were huge enough to affect the weather in our hemispheres. I mean, a volcano in New Zealand or Indonesia can impact the weather in Europe for a year or two. <laughs> this is a fact. It's happened. The immediate effect can be reduced sunlight, so it is colder. Now, we don't know how George has decided in terms of how all this translates to his world. We can't assume it just works all the same way. 
but we can be fairly confident that the huge amount of ash spewed into the sky affected the climate as far away as even Westeros for a while. If one huge volcano on Earth can do what I just what I just described and Aziz described too, <laughs> fourteen volcanoes should be able to do something similar enough, right? Fourteen is more than one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when we brought up Hard Home earlier, we noted that hot ash fell from the sky for half a year. So there you go. So if Westeros was in a winter situation, it would have been a particularly bad one with sufficient sulfur in an eruption. In effect, following this cold streak is often a period of increased heat. So if Westeros was in summer then, it would have been a particularly hot one, I suppose. What do you think of when you think of uh, the weather staying cold or light falling, failing to come from the sky as per normal? And this condition lasts a long time. Well, if you're like us at all, it reminds you of the long night. However, there can be no doubt that the long night and the doom are not directly related. The dating for the long night is unknown, but the date of the doom is very well known and they are far Far apart. There, there is no room for us to connect them even with that uncertainty. However, it doesn't mean that noting these similarities is a dead end of some kind. Perhaps we are meant to think that the original Long Long Night had its roots in volcanic activity somehow. Consider the irony if this connection has any merit to it, though. <laughs> the cold-bringing, ice-natured others possibly owe the change in environment which allows them to become a major threat to <laughs> volcanoes. <laughs> <laughs> a song of ice and fire, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, whether we understand the reasons or not, the end result was that the subcontinent known as the land of the long summer was entirely wiped out. Much of it became an entirely new body of water called the Smoking Sea. The rest became uninhabitable. The very sea there boiled and smoked, and the land was overrun with demons. It was said that any sailor who so much as glimpsed the fiery mountains of Valyria rising above the waves would soon die a dreadful death. The doom may have happened in an instant, but the lasting effects is, exist to this day, and the more immediate aftermath may have been worse than the event itself. So let's move on to part five of six, the century of blood. The lands of the long summer, once the most fertile in all the world, were scorched and drowned and blighted, and the toll in blood would not be fully realized for a century to come. Yeah, the century of blood was the name given to the roughly 100-year period after the doom. The near entire ruling class of the freehold was wiped out. Quote. What followed in the sudden vacuum was chaos. The dragon lords had been gathered in Valyria, as was their wont. Now, there were a few exceptions. Uh, even a few dragons survived, such as in Tyrosh and Lys, but they and their riders were soon torn apart by the <laughs> now free citizenry. Thus, the vast majority of the ridiculous amount of territory the Freehold controlled became detached from this long-standing central authority in mere moments. Yeah. New leaders emerged intent on seizing power, which meant war and strife. Mm. Valyria's influence was so great that even places that were not in their control felt the impact of the doom's aftermath. Even in far-flung Ig, far-flung <laughs> Ib, <laughs> oh, we'll have to leave that one in, that's too funny. The, god, the last god king was overthrown. Now, Ib is as far from Valyria as Old Town is from the Wall, but with a sea in between. Yeah. The, the effects were known even there. The chaos was not only intense, but it was widespread. And as Littlefinger reminded us in the show, chaos isn't a pin. Chaos is a ladder. I wish I could do a Littlefinger voice. Like <laughs> kind of like a Batman voice. But, uh, and there were many opportunities for those of a certain ilk, those who aim to climb the ladder. One thing a strong central authority does, ostensibly, is keep the peace. Uh, strong laws and fear of punishment can prevent people from acting out on their base urges. But when all that vanishes in seconds get a bunch of people that can now freely act on their grudges and urges with no one to answer to. 
Uh, some people aren't so great at killing, but are good at having or making money. Especially the free cities, places largely ruled by merchant families rather than noble families. A lot of the people good at killing also realized that the people with money could now satisfy those grudges or push even greater ambitions like conquest. Some free companies had been born during the century of blood and chaos that had followed the doom of Lyria. Makes sense that swords would do well in such an environment, doesn't it? Really. Some killer types probably went straight for those who were relying on the central authority to not suddenly cease to exist, and just took their wealth. <laughs> of those who didn't, they had many employers to choose from. Volantis was probably an early favorite, as the Tiger faction within saw themselves as heirs to the Freehold's domain, and they set about reconquering it. A Volantine fleet took Lice and, and a Volantine army captured Mir, and for two generations all three cities were ruled from within the Black Walls. That ended when the Tigers tried to swallow Tyrosh. Pentos came into the war on the Tyroshi side, along with the Westerosi Storm King. Bravos provided a Lyseni exile with a hundred warships. Aegon Targaryen flew forth from Dragonstone on the Black Dread, and Myr and Lys rose up in rebellion. The war left the disputed lands a waste, and freed Lys and Myr from the yoke. Kohor and Novos broke their power on the Rhoyne when the Fire Galleys fought on Dagger Lake. The Tigers suffered other defeats as well. After a century of war, Volantis found herself broken, bankrupt, and depopulated. Which means the sellswords were probably long gone by then, <laughs> dead or sitting pretty on their earnings or conquests. But not everyone was interested in advancement or conquest. Others were more interested in destruction. Out of the east came the Dothraki, driving small folk from their hovels and nobles from their estates, until only grass and ruins remained from the forest of Kohor to the headwaters of the Siloru. The Dothraki have religious belief woven into their acts of destruction. They believe farms are to be sinful, for they cut into Mother Earth. The devastation is a returning of the wilds to their nature state. It's great, scary, really. <laughs> <laughs> the free cities and others suffered at the hands of the Dothraki, none more so than the kingdom of Sarnor, though, who thrived during the time of Lyria, but fell during the century of blood, unable to unite themselves against the common foe. Thus... They barely outlasted the Freehold. Now, we mentioned the Sarnori in a little more depth in our World of Ice and Fire overview episode, just by the way. Mm -hmm. Quite interesting. Yeah, the Sarnori are really interesting, but very mysterious. Yeah. Others fared better by aiming lower, becoming independent, and avoiding destruction by being of use to the Dothraki. The cities of Slaver's Bay were able to throw off the last of the Valyrian shackles, ruling themselves in truth rather than playing at it. And what remained of the Giscari swiftly reestablished their trade in slaves, though where once they won them by conquest, now they purchased and bred them. Volantis tried something now considered quite foolish. The fleet they sent to reclaim Valyria vanished in the smoking sea. But the Volantines were not nearly the only ones to try this. Orion, a dragon lord who was present when the doom occurred, he raised forces from the cohort colonists and proclaimed himself the first emperor of Valyria. He flew away on the back of his great dragon with 30,000 men following behind a foot to lay claim to what remained of Valyria and to reestablish the freehold. But neither Emperor Orion nor his host were ever seen again. Also, recall, recall the tale of the Lannisters acquiring and then losing the Valyrian steel sword Brightroar. Tommen, or Tommen as George says, <laughs> Tommen II carried it with him when he sailed with his great fleet to ruined Valyria, with the intention of plundering the wealth and sorcery he was sure still remained. The fleet never returned, nor Tommen, nor Brightroar. 
and now recall the tale of the Valyrians foretelling destruction at the hands of the gold of Casterly Rock. And note how it seems to be the opposite. <laughs> Lannisters seem to be seem to be dying while trying to loot Valyria. Maybe they're looking for the gold they paid for Bright Roar. Tywin's brother repeated this mistake. Jerrion Lannister had set sail for Valyria when Tyrion was 18, intent on recovering the lost ancestral blade of House Lannister and any other treasures that might have survived the doom. Tyrion had wanted desperately to go with them, but his lord father had dubbed the voyage a fool's quest and forbidden him to take part. And perhaps he was not so wrong. Almost a decade had passed since the Laughing Lion headed out from Lannisport, and Jerrion had never returned. <laughs> I like how Tyrion says, perhaps <laughs> Tywin wasn't wrong about that. <laughs> He's gone for ten years and no one's heard yeah. of him? Yeah, all right. Yeah. So despite the loss of these two ancestors, the otherwise intelligent Tyrion is somehow untroubled. I know some sailors say that any man who lays eyes upon that coast is doomed. He did not believe such tales himself, no more than his uncle had. <laughs> he should listen. <laughs> Yet he hears that. No free man would willingly sign aboard a ship whose captain spoke openly of his intent to sail into the smoking sea. Well, Tyrion was a bit stubborn about accepting what's beyond the wall, too. Snarks, yeah. <laughs> we saw the others in the giants, but <laughs> he has not. There's also a guy who claims to have done this successfully. Euron Greyjoy, the crow's eye. Have you forgotten? I have sailed the smoking sea and seen Valyria. Every man there knew that the doom still ruled Valyria, yet the crow's eye had been there and returned. Have you? The reader asks softly. Euron's blue smile vanished. I don't believe him either, to be honest, <laughs> but we don't know for sure. Me neither. But, but probably not. <laughs> Given the tales of demons and the huge expeditions vanishing with no survivors, it sounds like the fallout isn't entirely natural, and that there might be something supernatural at work. In Westeros and Essos and beyond, the unexplained can easily be considered magical, but that isn't always the case. It's basically impossible to judge, given that Euron's dubious claim is all we have to go on. <laughs> now, part six of six. Valyria now. Valyria <laughs> today. There are queer rumors of men living still among the ruins of Valyria and its neighboring cities of Oros and Tyria, yet others dispute this, saying that the doom still holds Valyria in its grip. A few of the cities away from the heart of Valyria remain inhabited, however, places founded by the freehold or subject to it. The most sinister of these is Mantaris, a place where the men are said to be born twisted and monstrous. Some attribute this to the city's presence on the Demon Road. Now, Danny sent envoys to Montaris, but their heads were sent back. So they're unable to tell us whether these rumors are true. Mm -hmm. Still, it does seem as if there is more to the ruin of Valyria than a volcanic wasteland. Is it reasonable to think these volcanoes could be active for over 400 years straight? If the doom itself holds sway still, does that not indicate magical forces are present? Or is it simply an, an inhospitable place for purely natural reasons? Now, awkwardly, the ones who would know best are probably the Valyrians themselves, and their departure from this world in such a grand fashion <laughs> meant the loss of pretty much all their knowledge as well. Mm. Now, perhaps another thing was lost when Valyria was consumed. Maester Lewin explains... Perhaps magic was once a mighty force in the world, but no longer. What little remains is no more than the wisp of smoke that lingers in the air after a great fire has burnt out, and even that is fading. Valyria was the last ember, and Valyria is gone. The dragons are no more. But Maester, the dragons are back, and magic is on the rise. Does, that, does this make the ruins of Valyria less dangerous, or will the doom linger? A testament to what 
may have been the greatest civilization Planetos has produced. Well, that's all for today, folks. It's a shorter episode than normal, of course. It's a smaller topic than normal as well. Um, if you like what you heard, of course, please uh, go to historyofwesteros.com and leave us a donation. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you can also tell your friends. I think that word of mouth is probably the best way that um, our podcast is spread mm-hmm. and grown. Um, I know that when I tell somebody about something that I'm really into and the natural enthusiasm of my voice comes out, it, it really sells it. <laughs> you sound so, so enthusiastic oh, right yeah. there. Well, when I uh, sell something enthusiastically. <laughs> no, seriously though, folks, it really does make a huge difference. You telling your friends and uh, spreading the word about us, it's probably the best thing we have going for us. Yeah, um, you can also, if you want to interact with us more, we have a forum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on historywesteros.com slash forum. There's a link to it on our main website. Um, we also obviously have Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Tumblr, email. We have all these things. You can see them all linked on our website. Definitely. Uh, now, we have a few uh, other episodes in, in the works right now. Uh, the next one is likely to be part four of Religions and Magic series. That would be the Knight's King. I've gotten a lot of work on that done. We've also started working heavily on the Blackfire Rebellions, which is a huge topic. There'll be several episodes on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, several As we long said, episodes. Uh, Septon Barth and Lomas Longstrider. Yep, those will be shorter episodes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a couple other ones that, I, uh, that I'm not thinking of right now, uh-huh. but we've always got a lot of topics ongoing, and we would love to be able to spend a lot more time on those, and uh, we'll be back soon with the next episode. So until mm-hmm. next time, thanks for listening, and Valar Margolis.